Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we discuss the realities of COVID-19 and other diseases on our health and well-being, and how vaccines have both saved us from grim realities and led us to forget just how bad diseases can get without vaccines to keep them at bay. My guest is Meredith Wadman, senior reporter with Science Magazine in Washington, D.C., and author of The Vaccine Race, Science, Politics, and the Human Costs of Defeating Disease. Whenever vaccines are discussed historically, I've noticed as a layperson who's not in it the way you are, but what people point to is polio, what people point to is smallpox. Um, you did this book, The Vaccine Race, about German measles. So I'm curious about how German measles added or changed the vaccine landscape. It was not as famous as polio by any means, but there was a big German measles epidemic worldwide, actually. But it arrived in the United States in uh, late 1963, early 1964. Now, this was nearly 10 years after Salk's famous polio vaccine had first been introduced. Rubella, also known as German measles, is not that serious if you get it as a kid. Adults can feel a bit worse, but it's, it's not something that lays you low like even the classical measles typically. But if a pregnant woman gets it when she is infected, it's devastating for the fetus. It crosses the placenta and invades virtually every fetal organ. And so in the mid-1960s, you had tens of thousands of American babies born blind, deaf, mentally disabled, with congenital heart problems, with intellectual disability with combinations of these. You had also untold numbers of stillbirths and abortions due to this epidemic. And so it was front and center in the mid-60s and is long forgotten now. And why is that? It's because that set off a race to develop a rubella vaccine, which was developed and licensed by 1969. And the next feared epidemic of rubella, because it came around again about every five or six years, did not materialize in 1970. And with widespread childhood rubella vaccination, by the turn of the century, uh, congenital rubella is just a a non-issue here in North America. Now, how was the vaccine accepted? So you say science, politics, and the race. So what was the politics around the rubella vaccine in particular? It was politics around inside players and outside players in the race to develop the vaccine. It wasn't around, will people accept this vaccine? I mean, people were clamoring for it, pregnant women and childbearing age women in particular. And it's just just a completely different climate than the one we're inhabiting now, where vaccines were seen universally, I would say, or nearly universally as a social good and the desirable outcome uh, and a way to to prevent really crippling diseases like rubella was at that time. In the 60s, I mean, with polio, with with the rubella vaccine, even with polio, there was actually a, a manufacturing issue where kids died and still parents were like, yeah, no, we know why we accept it. We still want this vaccine. What changed? You wrote this book and you've been covering various aspects of the current pandemic, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. In your estimation, what has shifted? What has changed? Why are we 
now in this place where we're actually pushing back on a vaccine that can help us? I think trust in medical authority, which I'm not saying was like entirely a great thing. There was a big sense of medical entitlement in the mid 20th century that led to some abuses of power. But by and large, people accepted doctor knows best in quotes. And today, that's up for grabs. Everyone is their own expert. Everyone can, you know, go and search on credible or less credible sources on the internet and find out really what they want to find out and follow the leads that will lead to the conclusion they want to get to. And so it's, it's, it's very disconcerting. Uh, the medical establishment, for lack of a better word, is, is poor at communicating in many cases. It's certainly been confusing around COVID, and that's because we're in the middle of an epidemic and the science is constantly changing, and science is an iterative process. It corrects itself with new data, but that's hard to explain to the public and to people who want certainty now. And don't we all? Right, right. No, and that's an excellent point. I mean, we all want certainty. And if you have an understanding of science, it's like, well, yeah, of course, we don't know anything because it's COVID-19. This is new. How could we know? And now we're learning. And okay, now that we learn, we can make some shifts. We can we can make some adjustments. And you're a science communicator. You're you're a journalist. Uh, how might you have wanted the communication to be different over the past two years? You know, I don't know that it really could have been different. It's it's so easy to do. You know, Monday morning quarterbacking, but scientists made decisions based on imperfect knowledge at the time point they were in. Sometimes the politics got ahead of the science. I guess one thing I would hope could have evolved differently was the the Biden administration's late August or early September 2021 recommendation for universal booster vaccination before the data was in to support that, putting the FDA in a very difficult position. That was politics intervening in science, and it shouldn't have. I guess that's one thing I would pick out. Um, you know, early on, Tony Fauci said, don't mask up. And that was because they were trying to preserve masks for medical professionals and healthcare uh, folks who needed them. But it, it would have been great if he had been really clear about that, not that masking wasn't good as a general proposition, just that there was a limited supply and providers needed to be at the head of the line. So full transparency is so, so important in establishing and maintaining public trust. And I fear there's just a long hill to climb to build back to some semblance of general public trust in, in medical science. Yeah. I mean, I think it's across the board, unfortunately, but you're right in medical science. And, you know, you, you bring up Dr. Fauci's honestly appropriate, hey, don't wear masks. But I wonder if there is this assumption that, well, the public is just going to rush out to grab masks. I think there's a shortage. So we need to just say, don't worry about it so that we put them at ease and then the medical professionals can have them. Whereas if you are transparent and if you are telling everybody the full picture, there's that risk of trust, no, which is right. I mean, I always want full transparency, but I can understand why they did what they did. But I'm wondering if you have any insights on that balance of how do you be as transparent as possible without causing a panic or causing the public to become very individualistic? I think you have to really trust in the public that they can handle the truth. Like Donald Trump like tried to hide the truth back in February 2020 when he knew it. It's patronizing, and people would much rather deal with 
facts that are accurate than having to guess at the meaning behind some opaque statement uh, by a public official. Yeah, I agree. So much damage was done, even though we didn't know, like not just saying, I don't know. I don't know can be comforting too. We're going to figure it out. We don't know. Um, But that's something I think a lot of us have a hard time saying. A lot of people have a hard time saying. Another thing that's really difficult in public health communication is that public health necessarily is talking about populations and risks and uncertainties. And, And it's not talking on the individual level. Scientists will say something like, you know, it's probable that this new Omicron sublineage will not be any worse than the original Omicron in terms of making people sick, but the data is incomplete. The risks assessment, however, points to a likelihood of, whereas people just want, no, it's not as dangerous or it's just the same. You know, they want absolutes and who doesn't? I totally get that. And the other thing is that talking in risks and probabilities, which is correct science, is not talking in story. And people want story. That's why one story this week in the Washington Post about a pregnant woman and her growing baby who were nearly lost to COVID through a very long struggle, in some ways goes much further than a huge nature medicine study published last December that tracked every Scottish pregnancy once vaccines became available and showed how much worse it turned out for you if you were unvaccinated. Yeah, yeah. The data just doesn't seem to fall in place, but those stories are powerful. But to me, story and imagery are tied together a bit. I think about during Vietnam, the public saw the coffins, the rows and rows of flag draped coffins, and that caused the public to kind of notice and pay attention. And so in 2000, of course, the Bush administration is like, you know what, let's just, we're not going to show those photos. We're not going to let those photos out into the public. And there was a FOIA, you know, to get those released because those kinds of things have an impact on public sentiment. And so with disease, um, German measles, rubella, polio, um, smallpox, more visual diseases, right? Like you, you can see the visuals and, and, and something like COVID-19, if you're walking around with a cough, cold-like symptoms, it's not visual. And then in addition, there's this, well, we're not going really into the hospitals that much to show the wards because there are privacy issues. So how do we really show, tell the story and show um, to really drive the impact home? I think it's been almost uncanny that we know that Nearly a million Americans are dead now from COVID-19 since nearly two years ago. And yet we don't, it's not like bodies are in the streets, which, by the way, happened during the 1918 flu pandemic. Sometimes they were literally piled outside people's doors to avoid contagion. We're not seeing that. And so it's very hard, unless you know someone intimately who's affected, to grasp the direness of it and, and the urgency of not letting it spread further. And so it's it's just kind of bizarre to watch the Super Bowl and zillions of unmasked fans the same day that, you know, a Pearl Harbor of deaths is happening every day. A Pearl Harbor of deaths. Yeah. Yeah. Just on that day. That caused us to jump into World War II, you know? 2,300 or 2,400 sailors who were killed at Pearl Harbor. And that's been the death count on average over the last two weeks per day from COVID. We blink and say, Meh. And they're invisible. Unless you're in the hospital or, in, in you know, they're they're invisible to us. And how do we make that visible? And, and I'm asking you as a, as a journalist, how can we make that visible how can those 
who have the ability to make it visible, make it visible. I think there's been a lot of great journalism that found individual patients or families willing to have their stories told. There was also the incredible display of flags, one for each death on the National Mall here in Washington. That was tremendously moving. And there's been untold amounts of art, music, literature around this. So I think we just have to find the ways we can express it and express it, the grief and the loss. Yeah. No, that's that's a great point. And then it, it's just a matter of what people are engaging in. And that comes down to our echo chambers and uh, whether or not we are engaging with the content that is out there. Because you're right, there's been some amazing stuff out there, but it's not reaching us as a whole anymore. We're not We're not all seeing it. When you're covering these stories on Omicron and on the vaccines, what are you hoping to get across to people? Well, a lot of times I'm trying to interpret the latest paper, the latest findings to an audience of, of educated generalists. And that is, is a tall challenge sometimes. It's, it's hard to get the right 800 words onto the screen or onto the paper um, that, that convey clarity and succinctness and, and that put a finding in context. Here's what we already know about this. Here's how this paper breaks new ground. And that um, is just a constant challenge. I'm, I'm constantly feeling like I'm a one step ahead of my readers. So I have to ask the scientist I'm interviewing, okay, what new does this paper bring and, and, and how should it inform our actions? Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, just a daily challenge as a science communicator. It's really tough. Especially as, as things are shifting and, and trying, to, trying to tell the full story as we learn new things. Just this week, I've been assessing a new preprint. So it's not yet peer-reviewed, hasn't passed muster with peer reviewers, but it's out of a very established group at the University of Tokyo that looked at this new Omicron variant called BA2. If you think of the original Omicron as BA1, this is quite different genetically and has been growing to dominance in certain countries, including Denmark and India, and is growing here in the States, although still at a small fraction of our total cases. And the question that this paper attacked was, you know, how is it different than its sister that came along a little bit earlier, the original Omicron? And these folks studied hamsters, and they found that their lungs were being torn up more by this new variant than by the original one. And that was pretty sobering. But then you have to step back and say, okay, this is one study in hamsters. Hamsters don't necessarily translate into human beings. Should we write about this? And if so, how do we couch it? We, we ended up deciding to hold off on writing about it and wait for some real world human data that's upcoming out of Denmark and the United Kingdom that will look at hospitalization rates and how sick uh, this variant is making people in a human population in the real world. It's not to say that the Japanese work isn't excellent. It is, but you have to contextualize and be so careful about contextualizing things. What you choose to report about is itself an act of journalism. Yes, 100%. And it's funny that you bring up that study because I believe CNN did yes. go with it. Yes, I noticed. <laughs> and, and of course, what I took away from it is, oh, it's worse. Um, 
oh, it evades vaccines. Oh, you know, I'm taking away the headlines, right? If you're just rushing to live your life and you see these CNN headlines, you're like, oh, shoot, it's a worse variant. What do I do? And so the fact that your active journalism was to hold off and get more context really has an impact on, on the public sentiment. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking vaccines and public perception with Science Magazine senior reporter Meredith Wadman. Another thing about the hamster study is these hamsters weren't animals that had, you know, first been infected in the summer of 2020 with Wuhan and then got reinfected with Omicron in November. They didn't have any immunity. And so, like, when you introduce a, a variant into the, the human population right now, you're introducing it into a very complex context where there's lots of natural and vaccine-generated immunity, and both in some people. And so um, it's, there's just not parallel situations. Right. If you're just reading the headlines or if you're just reading the bullet points, then then you might come away with uh, uh, not a fully contextual assumption of what's happening or not a, a quite correct assumption. It's hard for us in, in our lives. And so we do rely on science communicators, on journalists to, to give us the information that we need. Context is all. <laughs> I mean, another little piece of context is is the back on the hamsters again. But infected with Omicron in lab studies, they've they've behaved a bit strangely. The virus hasn't replicated well in in their respiratory tracts, and we know it does well in in the respiratory tracts of humans. This is talking about the original Omicron now. There's new data out of South Africa this week, which you may recall is where both Omicron and this subvariant of Omicron called BA2 emerged. And the investigators in South Africa looked at like 95,000 infections, hospitalization rates, and rates of severe illness. And they found no appreciable difference between results from or outcomes from the original Omicron, also called BA1, and this new subvariant BA2. So that is the beginning of reassurance. I say the beginning because South Africa is a different population than ours. There's much more natural immunity there because proportionately a lot more people have been infected. But it is, you know, a good sign that this virus subvariant does not appear to be making people sicker there. You're watching these vaccines emerge, you know, mRNA vaccines, viral vector vaccines, and now we've got this Novavax vaccine. In my quick reading of Novavax, these are headlines. It could be the vaccine people have been looking for. It would be a, quote, game changer. Stepping back from the communication for a second and talk about how these vaccines are different and why that matters or why that should matter to us. I'd put a pause on the game changer. I can <laughs> talk more about that later. Yes, but, we'll definitely talk about that. Uh, that may be an overstatement. Uh, yeah. So the mRNA vaccines that the majority of Americans have taken if they've received a vaccine, they contain a little snippet of the genetic code of the coronavirus. And it goes into the host cell, the person who's been vaccinated into their cells, and it orders those cells to make the spike protein of the coronavirus. So then their immune system gets a look at it and is charged up and ready to attack it the next time it sees it. Um, whereas rather than giving the genetic code that orders your cells to do that, the Nova vaccine gives the spike protein itself uh, it's studded on these little, what they call lipid nanoparticles, little blobs of fat, essentially, and injected. And so that's the essential difference. It's a protein vaccine rather than a 
mRNA vaccine, which stands for messenger RNA, which is a, a type of genetic code. Why does this matter? Well, protein vaccines have been in use for several decades. The hepatitis B vaccine, which is very successful as a protein vaccine, HPV vaccines have relied on this technology. And in general, it's well known and this technology has a track record. So I think people are reassured by that. I think to say that it's a game changer, it's not like the, what, 25% of eligible American adults, is it, who have not been vaccinated, that every last one of them is now going to run out and get Novavax if FDA approves it, which, by the way, is still assessing it. Canada uh, authorized it this week. But I would gauge there's a handful of discerning people in that 25% who are leery of mRNA vaccines because of the newness of the technology and that we don't have the long-term track record with them uh, and who are holding out for Novavax. But I'd be amazed if it's more than just a smidgen of that 25%. I've had some, some emails from readers over the transom saying, hey, when is the Novavax vaccine coming? So there are clearly some people waiting for it. Um, but game changer is way too strong a word. It's, you know, we're, we're floating in vaccine here and, and the folks refusing it. Are... Now, where it could be a game changer, though, is globally. Um, it can really help with vaccine supply and particularly because it has such a much longer shelf life than the mRNA vaccines. And that really counts in, in rural and poor areas with little infrastructure. The rubella vaccine or the measles, mumps, rubella, polio, what are those? Uh, what's the technology behind those? Those are like many mid 20th century or essentially all mid-20th century vaccines, they are made of the whole virus. The whole virus either killed with formaldehyde, for instance, like the polio virus was dead in the Salk vaccine, but your body still saw it and said this is a foreign invader and, and developed an immune response, or it's weakened, weakened enough so that it doesn't cause disease when injected, but not weakened so much that it doesn't wake up the immune system. And as it happens with uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, the rubella component is a live weakened vaccine. The fancy word is attenuated. Attenuated. Got it. Got it. What about the flu vaccine? There's a couple kinds available. One is inactivated like Salk. It's, it's basically killed uh, virus. And then there's live weakened virus flu vaccines as well. Like the nasal, the flu mist is a live weakened one. Do you think there's an appetite for that type of technology in COVID, in the SARS-CoV-2? vaccine? China has used like inactivated vaccines, whole virus vaccines, um, you know, where you get the whole virus, not the little spike piece of it. And a majority, I believe, of their population has received those vaccines. Now, I don't think they have been shown up to be quite as effective as the mRNA vaccines. But in terms of durability and other questions that will have to be looked at over the long term, uh, that I, you know, I, I think the jury is still out somewhat. You write also a lot about consequences, uh, side effects of uh, COVID in particular. I noticed you did uh, stories on heart health, on pregnancy complications, on fetal development. I don't see these issues widely discussed outside of your work and a little bit of other work. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about what you've learned in your coverage of how COVID-19 affects us beyond just the initial getting sick? Well, there's been a couple important studies published just in the last week. They're the first to look in a huge population at the effects 
of COVID-19 infection one year later after the infection had occurred and it used the U.S. Veterans Affairs database. And these are investigators in St. Louis at Washington University and at the VA there. And they used electronic health records from more than 11 million veterans and were able to track in those who got infected versus those who didn't during the pandemic, the rates of various heart and mental illness disorders. And in all cases for every disorder, uh, there were more than nearly three dozen they looked at when you count the heart and the mental health. Rates were increased. The risk of having one of these diagnoses was significantly increased at one year in people who'd had COVID one year earlier versus those who had not. And it should be noted that this this pertained even in people who had mild COVID, but the associations were much stronger in people who ended up, say, in the ICU or were hospitalized with the disease. Wow. So that's very sobering. That's like real hard data on what, in effect, is a piece of long COVID. That's something we couldn't have talked about over the past two years because you need time, you need longitudinal studies to get there. I should flag that this was a Veterans Affairs population, so it was 90% male and 75% white, and the average age was in the early 60s. So those are things one has to keep in mind, although the investigators did correct. They used statistical tools to correct for those biases, but you can't completely get rid of them in the results. One thing that these studies didn't do, and which a lot of people wrote to me asking, what about this, is the veterans who were in infected in these studies were infected before vaccines were widely available. So they were virtually all unvaccinated. Now these investigators are moving on and looking at long-term impacts in people who were vaccinated and then got breakthrough infections. Given your work on the vaccine race and your work as a science journalist, I'm curious what you think we've learned over the course of our acquaintance with vaccine and our modern acquaintance with pandemics and epidemics and what we haven't learned or need to learn. I mean, we've learned that vaccines save lives. It's very hard to drive that home, though, especially to folks who were born, you know, since the battle days of the mid 20th century. It's not like you walk out your door in the morning and say, oh, how great, there's no one in a wheelchair from polio, you know, on my metro ride, or there's, you know, no one deaf from the longer term effects of measles, uh, or, you know, my friend's sister didn't die of, of hemophilus influenza. You know, it's just, it's very hard to let the absence of something be testimony to its success. And I think complacency and a lack of historical memory is really not serving us well in terms of the current vaccine climate. And yet, there's ample evidence that in this moment, you can protect yourself by getting vaccinated against COVID. And, you know, the New York Times, the newsletter this morning had another look at how red states and blue states and red counties and blue counties uh, are differing in their death rates. Uh, the more strongly a county voted for Trump, the higher the death rate from COVID over the course of the pandemic. And it's just people are literally dying because of politicization 
of of the vaccination and it's 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 just heartbreaking and and I don't know the answer. I don't either. This vaccine can save lives. We could have saved so many more and politics has entrenched itself to the point where it's it's hindering our ability to save each other's lives. If you're unvaccinated and are on the fence and are not completely dug in, please have a talk with your healthcare provider, even a second or a third or a fourth talk and, and consider really carefully what they have to say. And then the second thing is we are so siloed. I don't in my daily life, frankly, meet too many people who are unvaccinated. That's not the world I travel in. And I think that is really harming us not only physically with this uh, pandemic, but as a polity, you know, we have become kind of like two solitudes, as they used to say about the English and the French split in Canada. I'm right. Canadian by origin, <laughs> but never mind. You know, we're shouting at each other across a chasm. And it's just, uh, we got to find a way to listen to and talk to each other. Thank you to my guest, Meredith Wadman senior reporter with Science Magazine in Washington, D.C., and author of The Vaccine Race, Science, Politics, and the Human Costs of Defeating Disease. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening. <laughs>